The scripture reading for today is from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29. You can find it in your pew Bible on page 193 and 194 under your chair. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks, if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The word of the Lord. Two years before his death in 1963, a man by the name of A.W. Tozer wrote a book. And the book was called The The Knowledge of the Holy. Some of you, I suspect, have read that book. It's kind of one of the classics of Christian devotion. So he wrote this book called The Knowledge of the Holy. And in that book, A.W. Tozer said this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What Tozer meant when he said that was that our view of God is all important. How you see God, what you think about when you think of God, that is the life-shaping thing above all other life-shaping things in your life. Tozer said that our view of God is sort of like the foundation of a building. He said where it is inadequate or out of plumb, the whole structure must sooner or later collapse. So how do you see God this morning? is the question. What comes into your mind when you think about God? Do thoughts of God make you happy, for example? Or are you indifferent? Do you fear God? Do you love God? Do you doubt Him? Do you trust Him? Do you avoid Him? What's your view of God? Because I agree with Tozer. I believe that your mental picture of God and what you are convinced about with respect to God affect every choice that you make in life. 
Everything you do is all going to revolve around your view of God. It governs how you live, what you value, how you feel, what you hope in, the choices you make and that you don't make. And if you take the Bible seriously, your view of God even determines where you go after you die. We've been studying the book of Hebrews for about five months now. And if you've been with us through this series, you know that the book of Hebrews was written to a group of suffering, persecuted Jewish Christians who lived in Rome in the first century. They were suffering persecution because the society around them didn't believe as they did. Their view of God was very different from the Christian view of God. And along the way, as we've studied the book of Hebrews, we've heard the author exhort his readers to do all kinds of things. Here's a partial list. I went back through the 12 chapters or so of the book of Hebrews, and I wrote down on this chart here everything I could find in just two or three minutes that the author of Hebrews exhorts his readers to do. And, of course, you and I believe, I hope, that he's exhorting us to do these things too because this isn't just a letter to the Hebrews. It's a letter to all God's people everywhere. Through the writer of this letter, God has exhorted us to do these things. Don't turn away from Jesus. Trust in God. Don't harden your heart. Encourage one another. You remember some of these phrases? Enter God's rest. Approach the throne of grace. Be diligent to the end. Draw near to God. I'm not going to read all of them, but these are just, this is a partial list of things that are all in the book of Hebrews that are exhortations to us. And the question that I want to ask is, How are we supposed to do these things? That's a lot of stuff. That's a lot of decisions. That's a lot of behavior change. How are we supposed to respond in all of these ways to God's word to us through the letter of Hebrews? And the answer we find in our text this morning is it all comes back to your view of God. If you see God correctly, you'll be able to follow Jesus faithfully. You'll be able to hold on to the hope you profess. You'll be able to draw near to God and run the race and pursue holiness and all those other things. But if your view of God is, as Tozer said, inadequate or out of plumb, it'll be impossible. The Christian life will be a burden too heavy for you to bear. As Tozer put it, the whole structure will sooner or later collapse if you have a faulty view of God. Well, in this text this morning, verses 18 through 21 present one way of seeing God. It's the way of the old covenant. And I'll have more to say about that in just a little while if you don't know what that is. Verses 22 through 24 offer us a different way of seeing God. The way of the new covenant. Now, if you've been with us through this study, you know that we've talked about these things before. This is not the first time that this contrast between the Old and New Covenants has come. But here it is again. The author brings it to us one last time because he knows how important it is that we get a right view of God. And in language that is both terrible and beautiful at the same time, the author of this letter, the author of this text this morning wants us to see this, that when you see God through the lens of the gospel, Your life will be marked by a joyful, unshakable confidence. Don't you want that? We've been bombarded, haven't we, lately by bad news, terrorism, earthquakes, tornadoes, and so on. 
Don't you want your life to resound with a joyful, unshakable confidence so that even when things shake on you, you stand firm because you've got a good view of God, a right biblical view of God. Don't you want that? I do. And the author of this letter certainly knew that his readers needed that too. So let me show you two things this morning, two things. And then I'll take those two things and leave you with some words of application. First thing I want us to see from this text is that there is a way of seeing God that leads to paralyzing fear and bondage. Say that again. There is a way of seeing God that leads only to paralyzing fear and bondage. And it's in the first paragraph that Shanda read, verses 18 through 21. In those verses, you have a description of the experience of people who relate to God through an old covenant lens. That's their view of God. They're looking at God by means of the old covenant. The old covenant, what is that? It is the covenant that God instituted with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai back in the Old Testament. You can read about this on your own in Exodus chapter 19. But let me give you a little history in case you haven't seen some of the movies and read the books and read the Bible about this story. But what happens was that the Israelites, the people of God, were on their way up out of Egypt into the promised land. And along the way, they came to a stop at Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai was this huge mountain that's in the the, uh, Saudi Arabian Peninsula of today. And soon after the people of Israel arrived at the foot of Mount Sinai, God spoke to Moses and he spoke out of the heavens and said, Moses, I want you to come up to the top of Mount Sinai. And in Exodus chapter 19, verse 12, here's what God said to Moses at that point. He said, Moses, I want you to put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them... Be careful, be careful that you don't go up to the mountain or touch the foot of it because whoever touches that mountain will surely be put to death. So Moses went back down to the people. He told them, you better watch out, don't touch the mountain. But in a couple of days, people of God, God is going to come and speak with us and we're going to meet with him. So a couple of days went by. And the people woke up and this was the terrifying scene that they saw. And it's described in Exodus chapter 19. They saw Mount Sinai covered with smoke. Thunder crashed. Lightning was striking all over the place. We know what that's like here in central Florida, don't we? But this was way worse than what we see here in Orlando. Lightning striking all over the place. Exodus 19 says that everybody in the camp stood and trembled at what they were seeing. The entire mountain shook like a volcano that was erupting. A loud trumpet blast was heard and it grew louder and louder and louder until finally God called to Moses out of the top of the mountain again and he said, Moses, come up here. And he told him this. He said, go down and warn the people so that they don't force their way through to see the Lord or I will break out against them. Now that was the message of the Old Covenant. And that's when God, of course, gave Moses the Ten Commandments. So the Old Covenant consisted essentially of laws and commands, conditions that the people of Israel had to meet in order to relate to God. That was their view of God. 
They were looking at him through the binoculars of the Old Covenant laws, commands, and conditions. And the point of verses 18 through 21 of this text is that if you're a Christian, you've been set free from that kind of relationship to God. You don't have to look at God through the lens of the Old Covenant, through the law alone. Here's what I did to help you kind of follow the contrast here. came up with this chart. You know I like charts. And in verses 18 through 21, God is going to tell you what not to do in terms of your view of God. And verse 18 in the Greek language begins with the word not. I mean, God couldn't have made it more clear. Verse 18 in the Greek language begins with the word not because God wants you to know this is not how I want you to relate to me. In just a few moments, he's going to tell us, but here is what you're supposed to do. So let's look first at the left-hand column, verses 18 through 21, at this not column. This is not the view of God for the Christian of today. First of all, not. You do not come to a mountain that you wouldn't dare touch. You've not come to Mount Sinai. Now, the author doesn't name the mountain, but we know from history from the Old Testament that he was talking about Mount Sinai. So he says in verse 18, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire. See, you dare not touch that mountain, God is saying. Secondly, he's saying that you have not come to a gloomy, threatening experience of God. Look at the rest of verse 18. He says, you have not come to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word would be spoken to them. See, that is not the experience of the Christian. Thirdly, you have not come to a God who is an angry, distant judge. See verse 20. Verse 20 says, because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. Can you get that? Even if your pet dog were to go up and put his paw on Mount Sinai, you got to stone the poor thing because God is that fearsome. God is that angry, that threatening. He is that angry and distant. Next, you have not come to hear a message of woe. And this is a different woe from that I told the children. (laughs) This is W-O-E. You have not come to hear a message of doom, a message of threat. Next, you have not come to a God who says, you're an outsider, stay away. And then next, you have not come to a holiness that is terrifying, a holiness that only is intended to scare you away from me. And finally, the bottom line, you have not come to a God who relates to you strictly on the basis of law alone. Now, this left-hand column describes what you have not come to. You've not come to Mount Sinai in all of these different expressions of Mount Sinai. And as you look at that, I want you to ask yourself this question. Is that my kind of daily experience? Is that how I feel about God? Is that my view of him? Do I wake up every day and feel that God is a million miles away? He's distant. He's angry at me. 
He is a God who cannot be pleased, a God that I have not been able to satisfy. Do I only hear a message of woe? Do I only think that my standing with God is determined by how well I perform, how well I'm doing, how hard I'm working to obey all the commands? Because if that's your view of God, I want you to know there's no way on God's green earth that you're going to be able to sustain a life of joyful service to Jesus if that's your view of God. It won't sustain it. And the good news is that's not the view of God that God holds out to you if you are in Jesus Christ this morning. Now, I want you to understand one thing about the old covenant. There is grace even in the left-hand column. There is an element of grace there. And here's what I mean. I mean that God could have wiped out the nation of Israel a long time ago. Why? He had done so much for them, right? He had delivered them out of bondage to slavery in Egypt. He had provided streams in the desert. He had been faithful to them in so many different ways. And what did Israel do? They seemed to be able to do nothing more than gripe and complain. God could have unleashed his judgment upon the Israelites and he would have been a good and just God. And he didn't do that. God spared Israel. He loved Israel. He gave them his favor. So there's grace even in law, right? Don't divorce law entirely from grace. There's grace even in the left column. But the old covenant was essentially a law-based agreement between God and human beings. Do this and you will live, says God. Obey me and we'll stay on good terms. In some ways, I see God sort of like the Incredible Hulk. If you only look at him through the Old Covenant, don't make me angry. You won't like me when I'm angry, right? Is that your view of God? You don't understand his fatherly care? You don't feel his nearness, his compassion, his understanding? His ears open to your prayers. His heart breaking with you when your heart is breaking. Is that not part of your experience? Because if it's not, I'm glad I get to take you to verses 22 through 24. Where we have a different way of seeing God. On the one hand, we've seen that there's a way of seeing God that leads only to slavery and guilt and fear and intimidation. But in verses 22 through 24, we see that there is a way of seeing God that leads to freedom from guilt and joyful confidence. Freedom from guilt and joyful confidence. Verses 22 through 24 describe the experience of people who relate to God by means of the new covenant that he has made with us. Not through works of the law, but through faith in Jesus. The new covenant. What is that? The new covenant is what Jesus confirmed with us on the cross 2,000 years ago when he died for our sins. The new covenant is based not on what we do. Hear this. The new covenant is not based on what you do to obey the law. It is based on what Jesus did for you and the righteousness that he gives to you as a free gift. And when you relate to God that way, by means of faith in Jesus, by means of a focus on the good news of gospel, it changes everything. It gives you incredible joy. It sets you free from guilt and shame. 
And it invites you into a relationship that is empowering and enabling. That is actually, in the best sense of the word, fun. It is fun to be God's people. But only if you see God by means of the new covenant. So let's go back to this chart and fill in the other half of the, of the, of the chart. The right-hand column starts with the word but. My favorite word in the Bible. Not Mount Sinai, but Mount Zion, says the author of Hebrews. Let's go down the chart. First of all, you have come not to Mount Sinai, this mountain that you dare not touch. You've come to Mount Zion. It's a mountain that not only you may touch, but it embraces you. It touches you. It reaches out to you. Look at verse 22. You have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. Mount Zion was the destination of the Israelites as they marched up out of Egypt into the promised land. That's where they were headed. It's another word for Jerusalem. But the author of Hebrews is obviously not talking about the Jerusalem on earth, the literal Jerusalem. He's talking about the heavenly Jerusalem. Revelation 3.12 says that one day the new Jerusalem will come down out of heaven and welcome us in. It's a figurative way of talking about our eternal home on the new earth. If you want to read more about the new Jerusalem, the heavenly one, read Revelation chapter 21. It goes into dazzling detail about the glories of the new Jerusalem, Mount Zion. That's the mountain to which God's people have been invited. Secondly, you remember we said at Mount Sinai, you had a gloomy, threatening experience of God. But verse 22 says that in Mount Zion, you have a joyful, festive, inviting experience of God. Verse 22b says that you have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. What a joyful scene that's got to be. We also saw that at Mount Sinai, God is an angry, distant judge, right? But at Mount Zion, your judge has become your friend. Verse 23b again, it says... You've come to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men and the spirits of righteous men made perfect. Oh, yes, God is a judge, to be sure. He never stops being a judge. But when you're in Christ, God, your judge, is your vindicator. He declares you not guilty. Because I want you to understand that God is just as holy as he ever was. Don't imagine for a moment that God's holiness gets diminished in the new covenant. It doesn't get diminished at all. God has not stopped being holy. But instead what he has done is he has opened up a new and living way to this holy God based upon the obedient life and the sinless death of Jesus Christ. God's requirements are just as demanding and just as inflexible as they ever were under the old covenant. But instead of waiting for you to meet the demands of the law, God meets the demands for you on your behalf in the person of Jesus Christ who lived the life you should have lived and died the death that you and I deserve to die. Instead of waiting for you to come to him, God runs to you like the father of the prodigal son and welcomes you in. 
I love what John Bunyan said one time. I've said this before where he said, Run, sinner, run, the law demands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. A better hope the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. God demands you total obedience, perfect obedience. But God gives you the obedience and you receive it by faith in Christ as a gift. We saw in the, third, in the fourth place that through Mount Sinai, all we heard was a message of woe. But at Mount Zion, we hear a message of hope and life. Verse 24 says, We have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, you know the story of Cain and Abel, right? You remember Genesis chapter Four, Cain kills his brother Abel. And we're told in Genesis 4 that Abel's blood cried out from the ground. What did it cry out for? Abel's blood cried out for vengeance and retribution. And this verse says that the blood of Jesus cries out a better message than that. See, Abel's blood cried out for vengeance, but... Jesus' blood cries out from the cross and says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. That's a better word, a better message than the message of doom and woe. Mount Sinai in the next place said, God said, you're an outsider. Stay away. Don't you dare touch that mountain. Don't even let your pet cat touch that mountain. But Mount Zion's message, God says, you are an insider. Come near Be a part of the community. You belong. You are one of us. At Mount Sinai, in the next place, there was simply a terrifying holiness. But at Mount Zion, you meet a holiness that is welcoming. A holiness that is inviting. Holy? Yes, indeed. But a holiness from which you don't need to run. A holiness to which you can run. Bottom line, the message of Mount Sinai was you relate to God on the basis of law. At Mount Zion, through faith in Jesus Christ, you relate to God on the basis of gospel. Good news. The good news that Jesus has come and made a way for you and God to be redeemed. Under the old covenant, to approach God was to die. In the new covenant, to approach God is to really live. Mount Sinai was a symbol of fear and of bondage. Mount Zion is a symbol of joy and peace and freedom. I think I've told you before about my two high school football coaches. I had a life-changing, world-resounding football career as a high school student. Just kidding. But I had two football coaches that were absolutely on both sides of this chart. A head football coach, his name was Coach Love. He was on the right side of the chart. Even his name said, I love you. He was a holy person in terms of his demands. Oh, he would work us very hard. I remember one time at halftime, he threw one of our players up against the locker. He was so mad. But you loved Coach Love because he loved you. He would pat you on the back. He would reward you. He would say, you're, you're the best. You really felt his love. But on the left side of the chart, I had an assistant football coach, Coach Barnes. Everybody hated him. 
He was mean-spirited. He was hard. He was never a rewarder. He would just push us and push us and push us. You could never satisfy Coach Barnes. And the question is, which one do you suppose we wanted to work harder for? Which one of those coaches did we want to please? Obviously, Coach Love. Because we understood his grace. In the same way that when you see God through the eyes of the new covenant, the grace of the gospel, you want to serve that God. You will go to no ends to honor and serve and please this God. Because you know how much he's done for you and how much he loves you. So I come back to the question that I asked you at the beginning. What's your view of God? It's all important. What's your view of God? If it's that one on the left, it leads to an unhealthy fear. It's no wonder you're so bound up with worry all the time. It's no wonder that you don't feel a tenderness from God our Father. When you're looking at him strictly on the basis of I've got to do this and this and this or else God's not going to like me. But when you see God by means of the new covenant and the freedom of the gospel, it leads to unbridled joy, a reverential kind of fear, freedom from guilt and confidence. I know you want that. The answer for you is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Go back again and again to the cross and preach the gospel to yourself and remind yourself daily of what Jesus has done for you. Now, before I wrap up, I want to talk to two different groups of people this morning. Two different groups of people. Let me draw a little bit of application to before we go. First, I felt compelled to give a word to anyone here today who is still figuring out where God fits in your life, if he fits at all. I do not doubt that there are some skeptics among us, some doubters, some doubting Thomases, maybe some agnostics, um, maybe an atheist or two. I hope so. Those are the people that we want to reach out and love. Whoever you are, maybe you've just sort of put God on the shelf because he just doesn't seem to matter to you very much right now. Life seems to be going along okay. You don't really pray or sense any need for God or desire to do what he says to do, you're okay without him. If you are there, I I want you to just listen to verse 25. You heard it a little while ago. Uh, Let me read it again. Verse 25 of this text says, See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they didn't escape talking about the left column people, if they didn't escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? I mean, I guess I want to ask those of you who fit into that category of those who doubt maybe the existence of God, the relevance of God to your life. I want to ask you, how much risk are you willing to take that God's not going to call your number up here pretty soon. Verse 26 of our text says that one day God's going to shake the cosmos. That means that one day the world as we know it is going to come to an end. That's what the Bible says. What if that really is true to my skeptical friends? What if that's really true? 
What if it's going to happen today, this afternoon? What if it's going to happen next Thursday? I don't know if you saw it, but there's a guy who said, he came out in the news yesterday and said that May 21st, the world's going to end. Did you read that? What if he's right? You say, oh, forget it. No way. What, but what if he is? What if he's right? How much risk are you willing to take that God is not going to call your number one of these days? Or what if you died this afternoon in a car wreck? I mean, stranger things have happened. The, obit, the uh, obituary column this morning is filled with the names of people who didn't think that that would be their last day. What if today's it for you? What are you going to do with those sobering words in verse 29? Our God is a consuming fire. I mean, you've got to, you've got to do something with this, with this message. I, I referred a couple of weeks ago to that movie, 127 Hours. Did anybody see it after I talked about it in such graphic terms? Probably not. It's about this guy whose arm gets stuck in a canyon to a boulder and he spends five days down there. He thinks he's not going to make it. He ends up having to cut his arm off to be free. But during those five days, one of the thoughts that comes to Aaron Ralston while he's down in that canyon, one of the thoughts that he thinks is, why didn't I return my mom's phone calls? All those times my mom called, left a message on voicemail. Why didn't I call her back? I want, you to tell, I want to tell you this morning that God has been calling you all your life. When are you going to pay attention? I know you've got questions about Christianity. So do I. And I don't, know, I don't know the answers to them. There are a lot of questions that really puzzle me too. But one thing I know, that there's a creator out there who seems to want a relationship with his creatures. We didn't just happen by accident. So I'm asking you to not keep putting that creator God off. Don't mistake his patience for leniency. Stop trying to live life on your own. Because that's what you're doing. Bend the knee. Admit your sins and need of God. And ask Jesus to forgive you. Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it to the full. Choose life. Choose life. Don't risk eternal death. Just wanted to talk to those of you who are skeptical. Now, a word to those of you who are followers of Jesus. And this is a really, really important question for us as a church. Based on Hebrews 12, what we've learned today, can I speak to us collectively? To what are we calling people? To what are we as a church calling people out there? You know, because Christians have done it wrong a lot over the ages. A lot of groups of Christians have called people to political parties. A lot of groups of Christians have called people to social reform alone. A lot of people have even called, a lot of Christians have called people to war in the past. And I think we've repented of those kinds of things. At other times, Christians have called people to programs in the church. 
Not that programs and social reform and political action are bad things. They're not. But maybe what God wants us to do is invite people into joy. The joy of the new covenant. When was the last time that somebody from outside UPC could have figured that we were having a party in here instead of church? Because we were having such a great time. When was the last time that you couldn't contain yourself for joy in God? Has it been a long time? Has it been a long time since you've been happy in the Lord? Happy to be free of sin and shame and guilt and hell? When's the last time you couldn't restrain yourself from dancing and jumping because of your faith in Jesus and what he's done for you? Shouldn't it sort of feel a little bit like verse 22 in here on Sunday morning? If there are thousands and thousands of angels in joyful assembly, can't it be that way in here on Sunday morning? Can't we have some parties as a church? Let's invite people into joy. Secondly, based on this passage, let's invite people into grace. Do people encounter barriers when they try to get in here at UPC? You know, I think we're doing pretty well, but I, every now and then I hear from people who say they didn't feel they belong here because they encounter barriers. They can't get in. I, and I wonder, where is that? Are you putting up barriers unconsciously? You know, when Jesus was here on earth, the worst of people were attracted to him like a magnet. Do we attract people of all kinds or do we merely tolerate them? Let's invite people into grace. Thirdly, let's invite people into hope, the hope that's described in this passage. I mean, after all, do you live with a sense that there is coming a day when all wrongs are going to be put right? When Jesus will fix what's broken and bring justice to the earth? You know, we're supposed to live as though we believe, verse 23, that Jesus is the judge of all men. We're not supposed to be the greedy ones, the dishonest ones, the mean-spirited ones. We're supposed to love people. We're supposed to be patient people. We're supposed to be forgiving. Because, why are we forgiving? Because we believe that there's coming a day when God is going to bring in the kingdom and clean up this mess. So we can live with hope. Not with a need for vengeance and revenge and getting even with people. So let's invite people into hope. And finally, let's invite people into awe. A-W-E. Like it says in verse 28, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let's be thankful and worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Oh, now there's something the church of today has far too little of. Oh, it's hard for me to say that word. I'm from South Carolina. Oh, what is it? It's a spirit of wonder, of amazement, of open mouth, flabbergasted, astonished fascination with Jesus. That's what awe is. Have you lost it? When's the last time you felt awe in the presence of God? Fascinated by his cross work. Astonished that he would allow you into his family. Those brothers and sisters are our priorities as Christians. Joy and grace and hope and awe. 
Our mission is to make a difference out there. At UCF, two miles away, among the families that live all around this church, and among the poor and the marginalized that live in the homeless camps, who are unemployed, who live at the life care center and other places, those are our mission targets. Let's take joy, grace, hope, and awe out there beyond these walls and into our community and live with that view of God that he is that God of grace, the God of Mount Zion. Marching, marching to Zion, said Isaac Watts. Beautiful, beautiful Zion. We're marching upward to Zion, the beautiful city of God. Let's pray. Father, will you please work so in our hearts this morning and every day that we will begin to hunger and pant and thirst after more and more of a vision of Mount Zion, the glories of your grace, the wonders of your gospel, that we might be a people filled with joy and hope and grace and awe. And may we, Lord, by your spirit and with your power, take those wonderful things outside these walls into the neighborhoods around where we live, into our schools, into our workplaces, into our grocery stores, everywhere we are, that we might be a people who live with a view through the new covenant to you, the God of grace. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.